in the blink of an eye, she was calling me back saying, your birth father is my first cousin. He and I grew up together. So wow. she screaming on the phone. Let's call him. Let's call him. <laughs> Take a girl and a guy and they fall madly in love and form a family. Sprinkle in some counseling degrees and a doctorate. A dream of transforming relationships as we know it. And 20 years later, we give you power couple Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. And this is Couples Synergy. Welcome back to another episode of Couples Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean. Hi, I'm Dr. Ray. And I'm Jean. And this is our podcast about love, marriage, and relationships. Check us out online at couplesynergy.com or on Facebook and Instagram at Couples Synergy. And please subscribe to our podcast and please leave us a review or send us any suggestions on topics you'd like to hear more about. And now on to Couples Synergy, an in-depth look at love, marriage, and relationships, where we bring you our experience helping thousands of couples transform their relationships for over 20 years. You know, everyone says you should work on your relationship, but nobody teaches us how. So we've created this podcast to teach people what they can do to create the relationship they've always dreamed of with the partner they fell in love with. On today's episode, we welcome Joy Fisher Griffin. Joy is an educator, author, and adoption advocate. As an advocate of adoption, Joy has authored a memoir, Finding Joy, a true story of faith, family, and love that helps others understand the thoughts of adoptees. Thank you so much for being on our podcast today, Joy. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ray and Jean, for having me. Thank you for thinking adoption and, and how that also impacts relationships was, was worthy enough to be on your show to share with your audience. Absolutely. We yeah. actually did an episode with a couple who went through infertility issues and then ended up adopting. Wow. And with a, a person who placed someone for adoption and with a couple that he was adopted then they couldn't have kids and they adopted. Mm -hmm. So he was adopted as a kid and adoptive as a father. Uh, yeah, yeah. So really cool topic. Really yes. fascinating. And how I did you get into this? Well, as an adult adoptee who um, I can just say at the age of four, I knew that I was adopted. My birth mother and I'm uh, sorry, not my birth mother, my my parents, my adoptive parents. My mother would always share stories with me at bedtime about um, my adoption journey and how I came to be with their family. And it, it wasn't something we talked about all the time, but it was something that I was always curious about. And I, over the years, I just wanted to know more about me and know more about who I am and, and, and where I've come from and what my background was and what's my makeup and my identity and all those different pieces that were different from my adoptive family, um, where those characteristics came from. So my, my advocacy work really just began four years ago, actually five years ago this, this month, uh, when our legislation changed in the state of New Jersey and the legislation opened previously closed birth records in our state. And it opened records for uh, people who were born between 1940 and 2015. Now, normally when you're adopted, um, you get a closed uh, birth certificate. So it doesn't have your birth parents name. It has your adoptive parents names. It's an amended birth certificate. And so New Jersey was one of the states and there are every state's laws are different. 
is that opened up those records. And I happened to go to an event where there were a number of adoption advocates, adoptees, adopted parents and birth parents. And that was the first time just five years ago that I had been around other adoptees. And I knew in that moment, sitting around that table, listening to other adoptees, adopted parents and birth parents tell their story, that one, I had to find out who these people were. Two, how did they get to such a place of healing where something that I felt ashamed about and kind of embarrassed about over the years, they just talked about it like it was just normal conversation. So I'm sitting there at the table. This is the legislative announcement of the laws changing. And I I just wanted to know who they were, where they, how they got to that place of healing and that place of peace as I struggled, as they told their stories and I'm crying my eyes out. And if I found out that they were all part, they were all advocates for the state of New Jersey. They had been fighting in New Jersey for the laws to change for over 30 years. One woman was the the original founder of the advocacy group, and she had been fighting for 34 years. She wasn't even born in the state of New Jersey, but she was one of the advocates, grassroots folks who were putting in their money, trying to get the laws changed in a state that wasn't going to impact her. So as I sat there during that celebration and heard those stories, I wanted to know who they were, how did they get to the place that they were in? And since I was about to be the beneficiary of work they had done and I hadn't done a thing, what is it that I can do to, because now I was benefiting from everything that they had done. And I knew I had some aha moments at the table that day as they sat and talked about adoption and feeling ashamed, feeling embarrassed, having a a low self-esteem, not being sure what what race you were from or what mix you were. Um, And I, I just wanted to figure those things out because now some things that I struggled with and not feeling that you were worthy, not feeling that you were lovable, the light bulb went off that these aren't just joy's issues. These are some issues that are connected to my adoption. It was impacting my relationships. It was impacting my choices and my decision-making. And to hear other people say that in an open public forum, I, I just knew that I had to learn more. And if I was benefiting just in that one conversation, imagine what decisions I would have made about relationships and about um, feeling lovable and feeling worthy if I had had some of those conversations when I was younger. It's very interesting. It's very interesting that your, your mother told you since age four that you were adopted, which I I imagine you would, you'd be able to say that that's not really typical, right? I mean, most parents, they kind of wait till later on. Not necessarily. You you have a mixed bag. You have a lot of people who uh, parents believe that they're going to go ahead and start using the language at, mm-hmm. at a young age so that it becomes something that's common, a common discussion and adoption isn't the taboo word in the household. Mm-hmm. So that if somebody else says it to you or around you, you know, kind of what that means based on what's age appropriate for you. And then you have people who are late discovery adoptees who don't find out until years later um, and some until they're grown, until their parents have passed on. So every adoptee story is different. Uh, I can't say there's any statistics that say one way or another. I know there's a lot of research that goes back and forth with what's best for the child. Um, But yeah, I I don't think it's out of the ordinary. Given that you were told that early on and, you know, they didn't want to make the the word adoption a taboo subject. How did that become a point of embarrassment for you? I I think when you think about um, what's the first question people usually ask, so who are your real parents? What defines real? Um, And then 
you know, so how much did you cost? So mm. when you're, you're uh -huh. younger and you're hearing people make these comments and you don't know how to process that information. So it becomes, okay, maybe I shouldn't say this, or why don't you look like your father? Uh, and then you're mentioning that you're adopted or someone else mentions to them that you're adopted. And then, then it's like, you can see people want to ask questions, but then they even have a hesitancy. And I think for me growing up, and you'll hear a lot of adoptees often say, is that what you see in the media? So if we weren't really talking about it that much at home and I'm taking in what I see in the media, you have the crazy adoptee, you have the adoptee who's trying to kill their birth parent. It's just so many scenarios that were so negative when I was growing up. I think over the past maybe five or six years since the show This Is Us, we've seen a, a, a glide up to the top in terms of an increase in the number of positive adoption stories. Um, but I believe the media played a big part of it and just people's reaction to when you say the word um, just gives you that feeling. OK, well, oh, well, maybe we're not supposed to talk about that. Can you share your story of what your mom told you when you were four? Yeah, I remember her. We would always bedtime was always stories. My mother was very big into books. Our family was very big into books and reading at night. And it always ended with, um, you know, you, your mother, your birth mother wasn't able to care for you. She loved you very much. And she wanted you to be placed with a family that would be able to raise you in ways that she couldn't. And that, you know, and it, that was just the mantra. And you'll hear a lot of adoptees say that that was a story that they've been told over time. Mm -hmm. And it never strayed away from that. And I think that kept me with a positive feeling of my birth mother's sacrifice at that time. But as a child who really wasn't talking about her adoption in the back of my mind I always stood she didn't love me enough to keep me mm -hmm. so how is anybody else going to love me yeah. and that was a piece that I struggled with I think in my relationships because I just never felt like I was enough if she mm -hmm. didn't keep me and that was my birth mother why is anybody else really going to stay around so I struggled with that for a very 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 long time yeah, I think those are the perspectives. And I think This Is Us did a good job with that of you don't really know what's going on inside of a person. And you can see the outside and you can tend to those things, but all those other questions. And, and then I know there's a difficulty between not wanting to hurt your parents mm -hmm. versus trying to figure out who you are. Right, right. Because and even as an adult, just just uh, going on this journey of finding my birth parents five years ago, people's first statements was, well, you had great parents. Why would you do that to them? Mm -hmm. And, you, you know, they did such a such a good job with you. How that's not fair. And so it was always placed as if it was something against my birth parents. And I had to find ways to articulate to people. And, and for a while, I just took it because I didn't know how to respond. And then a really close friend of mine, just he just kept hammering in, how could I do this to my birth parents, my adoptive parents? How could you do this to your parents? They're so good to you. And I said, uh, and I kind of use the situation, if there's a child who has a single parent, do you ever tell them they shouldn't think about the, their other parent who's the absent parent? Do you tell them that they shouldn't get to know the other family members and that side of family, regardless of the relationship with the absent parent? 
No, we try to encourage building relationships with the other families. We try to make sure that they know that side and the history of that side of the family. I said, so I want you to think of it that way. I said, um, I'm just trying to figure out who I am in the mix of all this. What's my identity? All these things that I felt that were quirky over the years, I now know are by nature part of genetics. <laughs> and so- Isn't that weird? That's so sense. weird. It is that we have so weird. much genetics that just comes out. And you're like, it's not the that, influence of. Yeah. Yeah. And that's been, I think it, and it's still, it still is very weird to me and to my girls, because for me as, as an adoptee, the first person that you see that really looks like you and has some mannerisms like you in a sense are your children. And so when that's they now have began to see their aunts, their aunts are tall, long legs. We have, I always say we have a big forehead, big eyes, and you know, this, this big poofy hair that at times when I was younger, I was embarrassed about and legs that I was embarrassed about because they were so skinny. And I looked at my aunts when I finally met my birth father's sisters. And I'm like, wow. And, and soon as she saw a picture of me, she said, I knew you were ours when I saw the legs. <laughs> so little things that you, I used to be embarrassed about, um, really began to make sense. And they, they're making sense, not only for me, they're making sense for my daughters. Can you talk about that, that journey? Like when you started seeking out your birth parents and kind of how that came about? Yeah. The, um, that, that, uh, celebration event that I mentioned that I went to again, that was about us getting our original birth certificates. And that was in January. A couple months prior, I had submitted my application because we knew the law was going to be implemented soon. So I submitted my application in November, awaiting for things to happen in January, went to the celebration, and I knew coming soon would be my, um, I would get my original birth certificate. I had already met a cousin on Ancestry a year and a half prior to all of this happening. Oh. And she and I could not figure out how we were related. We knew that she showed up as possible a first, second or third cousin. But other than that, we had no idea. All the names, that, not the names, the age ranges that I had for my birth parents didn't match anything on her family tree. And the location of where I was born didn't match anything for anyone on her family tree. So we, um, mid-January, she sent me a message. Did you hear anything yet? And I'm going, no, I haven't. But this was just before the legislative celebration. I said, I'm getting ready to go to the celebration. And after that, um, I should be getting my original birth certificate. When that comes in, I'll reach out to you and see what happens. The other piece I had to share with her, I said, when we applied for our original birth certificate, you were not guaranteed that you would get a name on your certificate. No. The caveat for the birth parents was that they could redact their information from the birth certificate before you actually got your birth certificate. So I would I would be able to apply. Um, I could get a birth certificate in the mail, but I could have gotten just a black mark across it where she redacted her information. Fortunately, she did not. I received my birth certificate in the mail at the end of January in 2017. She, her name was there. And what do I do? I pop it into Google, I <laughs> pop it into Facebook and up pops a picture. And the picture looks like my adopted mother. So th that was the first thing that I just, I, I stared at this picture. I, I couldn't believe it because she looked very much so like my adopted mother. And I had her name. I found out that she was a pastor, an associate pastor at a church. 
And I found out that she was in the same field, field that I worked in, which was education. And she lived a couple cities away. Blown away, didn't know what to do with the information, but decided to um, call my cousin who I found on Ancestry. Now she and I had never met, but we communicated for a year and a half. I said, I have a name. So I give her the name. I ask her to put it in her family tree. She takes a couple of hours, calls me back and says, nothing pops up, nothing that matches nothing. So at that point, we've realized we're related on my birth father's side. So we just said, "Okay, well, what do we do now? We have her name. We took hours and just sorted through her um, Facebook page to figure out a little bit about her and and try to come up with a plan of how we were going to reach out to her. So eventually I wrote her a letter. I sent it to two locations. The one was a home address that I found. The other was her church address. And I marked that one confidential. She eventually got the letter and I asked her in the letter to go back to Facebook, which is where I had sent her an original message and said, you know, and in the original message, I put my birth name. And that was one thing I didn't know that when you were born, your birth mother actually gives you a name that was on that original birth certificate. So I figured she would be the only person who would know that unless she told some other people herself. So she sends, I send her the letter about a week later, she responds on Facebook and we began messaging. So we're messaging back and forth. I confirmed my identity. I got to the point where I even sent her my driver's license via Facebook because I wanted her to know that I was a legitimate person. <laughs> and then she sent me the name of my birth father. And I took that name and texted over to my cousin that I had found on Ancestry. And before I must have hit send in the blink of an eye, she was calling me back saying, your birth father is my first cousin. He and I grew up together. So wow. she screaming on the phone. Let's call him. Let's call him. (laughs) I'm going, you know, I'm in the midst of texting my birth mother. And now I have my cousin telling me that her first cousin is my birth father. And she wants me to call him. Wow. I I was on overload. I was in the room by myself and I I didn't know what to do. So I finally said to her, how about you call him? You call him, you handle him. Let me deal with her right now. And and let's see where all of this goes. So she said, I'm going to call him. I don't think he knows about you. And we would have kept you. And so she's going on with all these stories of what she thought the family would have done. And I said, well, based on some information I already know, he does know about me. She didn't think he knew about me. I said, he does know about me. So he's not going to be surprised. So she calls him. I'm still back and forth on the messenger with my birth mother. And then she calls me back. She said, you know, um, he, 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 he was kind of shocked. And um, I think you probably need to give him about three or four days. And then he'll, I, I think he'll call, she said, but I, I think he needs about three or four days. So I said, okay. And, and for me, I was fine at that point because I'm still texting my birth mother. And then um, she and I get off the phone within 45 minutes, my phone rings and it's my birth father. And he just said he couldn't wait. He needed to call to figure out who I was, what I was doing. And and he did in the end a lot less asking of questions and just more of pouring into me all the history of our family. Wow. And and I always liken that to I think he was trying to tell me that I wasn't made from junk. You know, there's a lot of people who've done great things in the family. He talked about a lot of people who were educators, a lot of people who are in the science fields and um, 
just just very proud with what the family history was. And he wanted to put two and a half hours. I have about six pages of notes <laughs> from that one conversation. Um, and from can you, there, talk, can you talk about what was missing for you before connecting with them and what filled up for you after connecting with them? Yeah, great question. Missing was a sense of identity. Missing was a a finding, feeling that I belonged in a place, feeling out of place, um, not sure if I was lovable, if if people would, who were drawn to me or who would love me if they would stay mm. and just being afraid that I wasn't good enough. And that's something that I struggled with for a very long time. And I think meeting them filled the identity parts um, being in uh, support groups and even hearing my birth mother and my birth father share their stories helped begin to feel that whole in realizing that I was lovable, that it had to take a lot for a birth parent to relinquish their child, um, to go through a full term, you know, of being pregnant and then decide that you're not going to be able to keep your child and birth. So I- and get and give birth. And then and then I always say we have to be reminded that once you give birth, those the the bodies, everything that's went on with the body for nine months does not disappear. That's a constant daily reminder and, and could be a very traumatic experience to to still have that evidence, if you will, mm-hmm. and now not have the child who you who you brought into the world. So it it hearing from her, hearing her story hearing um, the struggle that she had and hearing about the times, because I think sometimes people think about, well, nowadays, you know, people get pregnant and it's, it's not a big thing, but in the seventies an unwed pregnant woman whose family was very much into the church, that was a no, no. Um, so getting folks to understand that as well. And, and for me taking that in about how difficult that decision must've been, um, at that time for her. So I imagine what, that, that understanding, you know, that understanding and perspective that they were able to share with you gave you kind of more a sense of compassion and that it wasn't about you. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And that the story that your mom was telling you is true. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I, and I, and that is a part that I think that um, I, I always talk to adoptive parents about one of the questions you asked earlier was about, is it, a, you know, telling a child at an earlier age or not? Mm-hmm. Sometimes what happens is when folks don't tell children at a younger age, they're making up stories along the way. They're making up stories about when the child was in their stomach and that never happened. They're making mm-hmm. up stories about what life was like during different parts, points in their life. And the child may not have even been with them then. And so when a late discovery adoptee eventually finds out, those are some of the things that they struggle with because now they feel that their life was full of lies. Mm. Were you adopted at birth? I was adopted at two months old. Okay. Do you know what happened in those two months? No, I do know that I was in a foster care um, a place that where I guess where they had some, they kept, I learned over time that there's foster care facilities that have older children, but there also are homes back then where people would take in babies until they were actually placed Mm -hmm. with their home. I actually keep looking because in in college, I went to college in the city that I was born. And so it was always difficult going around town when people would say, oh, you look like such and such family. And I would always wonder, was my birth family in the town that I went to college in? It turns out that they weren't. That just happened to be where the, um, 
home for unwed mothers, you know, was at the time. And that cat, I think it was one of the charity homes uh, that was very popular then. And um, it, it was just difficult. It was a difficult time. Can, can you talk a little bit about why the laws are the way that they are, you know, in different states and then kind of as an advocate, you know, why is it important then for like this new law that was passed in New Jersey to open up the, the, the birth certificates? Yeah, every every state's law is different. And there's a great website, adoptierightslaw.com, and it gives you what the laws are for your state. Again, for New Jersey, it was 1940 to 2015 are the years that were covered, um, that were uh, records were previously sealed. Every state can open it up for a different range of years. Um, why do I think it's important? Mainly because we have a right to know who we are. Uh, one of the things that was the big um, battle in the debate here in our state was people would say, oh, well, birth mothers were promised anonymity. And fortunately for our advocacy team, we not only had adoptees on our advocacy team, we had adopted parents, we had birth parents. So we had birth parents who spoke before legislature, legislators with their original documentation. And it mm -hmm. says nothing about um, being kept to be anonymous from their children, you know, at any point during the adoption. So I, th I think the key and key what was crucial for New Jersey is having all members of what we say the adoption triad there who are part of the advocacy work um, because there are many birth mothers who are who are struggling and suffering because they do want to know. Uh, but the laws in different states mean have so many different meanings. What was it like for you? You talked about not looking like your father. What is that piece like for you? Uh, that was difficult. Um, because then, it, you know, then you would get a lot of the jokes. What? Oh, well, she must look like her mother. And it. it it was difficult. It could be hurtful uh, because as a kid, you just want to look like your parents. You want to you want to feel like you're you belong with them. You, you don't want people to point out differences. And even my girls, um, my, my biological daughters, they when they were younger, they always wanted to look like either mommy or daddy. You know, kids like to hear that kind of reinforcement. So I think that's difficult for young people um, when somebody's telling you that you're different from everybody else in the family. Is there anything anyone could have said to help you with that? I think having been, if I had been exposed, like a, my volunteer work now is with a group called Miriam's Heart. And we intentionally have groups for adoptees. We have events for adoptees so that when you're in the room and you see a family that has a, a, a couple different demographics, can be black children, it can be white children, it can be Asian children. And, and parents of a, of a different race, when you begin to see it and that realize that it's not out of the ordinary, it's not strange, it's love, people are being taken care of. I think if you're exposed to that, um, it doesn't seem, you don't seem like you're so awkward or you're so weird from everything else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, our, our good friends um, that we podcasted, you know, they uh, adopted two black children to black girls. And so I don't know, do you have anything to kind of, obviously people are going to know that, you know, they're not absolutely biological yeah. children and they're white. 
And oh yeah, I'm sorry, they're Caucasian. And mm -hmm. so I was wondering if you had any kind of of your own experience in working with parents who have adopted, you know, children of a different race and some of the challenges that they probably face. Yeah, so, and, and that's it. Uh, being a, a black adoptee adopted into a black family, I, and because I do look similar to my adopted mother, there was some blending, there was some matching that went on so that we didn't get the stares necessarily that a, a white couple having adopted black children would get. You don't, people, and, and sometimes people cross the line and feel like they can just ask you anything they want, where mm -hmm. it, if it if it was a white couple and black children and my parents, a black couple and a black child, they wouldn't feel the same way that it would be appropriate to ask my parents the same questions that they sometimes ask other people's parents of mixed races. And we call those interracial, um, transracial adoptions. Mm -hmm. And and I think it, it makes it difficult. Um, it makes it difficult at times, depending on the neighborhoods and the uh, environment you're raising kids in, um, being culturally aware, uh, making sure that you're surrounding. And, and the, many of the families that I work with at Miriam's Heart are transracial families. They're transracial adopted families that have biological kids and then they also have adopted kids. And one of the things we try to do is make sure on our leadership team and our team of volunteers that there's representatives of all races so that kids get to see themselves. Having books that are representative of whatever that child's race is are important. Making sure that those images are displayed in the home, making sure that your child's school has materials that of things that look like them. So that's why we talk about books as, as well there. Um, finding out... Be, and again, people don't always know, they see automatically a difference in a transracial adopted family, but then there's still that walking on eggshells with what do we ask and what don't we ask. And a big part of what I'd like to do in the future, and I'm, I'm currently in school to get my doctorate, is research on schools. In our schools, we have the kids, you know, when, the, when they're not with the parents, they're with us. How can we better help our families? How can we better help when, when they need to know where to turn and where to go? How can we better support and give them the resources that they need? When I often talk to whether it's adoptive families or transracially adoptive families or foster families, they always talk about, oh, they give us this one resource. We can do better than that. So I think really educating people that it's okay to talk about adoption, we just have to do that on a front period. And then for our transracially adopted families to be able to put things in place with, to normalize conversation for them too. Uh, the, the children's books that I've written, one of them is Choosing Joy and Adoptee's Journey and Finding Belonging. And the other one is Singing with Joy. Um, there's lots of different ways to be a family because we want to have kids start having discussions about love and about family and that it's going to look different for different people. And our young people are talking about everything else under the sun. And I think <laughs> it's, it's time that we start, you know, having those conversations with them, which will then make the adults be a bit more comfortable with that as well. But some of the things that I do um, intentionally plan to do with our um, organization is some things on hair, some things on, on culture and background and history, um, and, and just finding ways to mix those things in there and open up the conversation where people have a safe place to ask questions, you know. That's fantastic. So, you know, you talk about the 1970s when the overculture was pretty strong. Mm -hmm. And today the blended family is the leading structure. Absolutely. You know, so you do see, 
even blended families that are steps mm-hmm. and that's not adoptive. What is the right thing or some things that you could have questions about that are not offensive? Like if you wanted to be supportive of someone, I mean, if it's obvious that they're different races, you know, there's a situation happening. What is okay or not okay to say to them? Um, what is okay or not okay to say? There's sometimes I've I've heard from some of our transracially adopted families that a mother took her son into the hospital, and the nurse, one nurse, kept saying, "Oh, well, he must look like his father. He must look like his father." And she just kept saying that to the family. She just kept saying that to the mom, and the mother at some point had you know she had had enough um, because it was clear that the son was not her biological child. Mm -hmm. And she finally said to the nurse, you know, I, I, as another nurse comes in, she says, you know, I don't really know what happened. I just can't even remember. It was such a wild night. And then the (laughs) other, the other nurse said, that's what you get for getting all in people's business, you know? And, and, and there are some questions you can ask, but the big suggestion, a big, I guess, point there is that, um, if you wouldn't ask that of a biological family, is it really appropriate for you to ask that question of this transracially adopted family just because you can see that there is a difference? Mm-hmm. And if there is something that you want to know, you have to ask, ask the parents. Ask, don't, don't go directly to children. That's sometimes what, what people do as well. Then you make the child feel uncomfortable and out of place. Mm-hmm. If there's some things you're interested in or curious about, people will talk to you and they'll answer. But, you know, be mindful and be sensitive with your question. Is that something you would ask somebody else or are you just asking it to to be nosy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so in getting connected with your biological family, how did you navigate that with your adopted parents? Yes, that that was um, there was a great book that I read uh, prior to even having my reunions with my birth parents. And it was uh, actually called Michelle McComb was the author and it was adoption reunions. And in this book, she has a chapter for each, whether you're beginning to search, you're interested in searching, you're doing your search, you have your reunion, what happens after the reunion, but every section of that, each chapter has a segment for the adoptive parents, the birth parents and the adoptee. So what you're going to be feeling, what you're going to, um, what you may do, what it may take you back to. And so I bought, as an educator, I bought a copy, six copies of the book, sent them all to my parents Said I don't care. You don't have to read it front to front to back, cover to cover, but please just thumb through and wherever you land, read something. I said, and don't just read the section that's about you as the adopted parent or the birth parent. Please read something about what the other person might be experiencing as mm. well. And so I, I think with that piece, that kind of opened my eyes too, because everybody thinks, oh, reunion is so wonderful. Now you're going to meet your birth. But you have to, what is that moment going to take your birth parents back to? What is that moment going to take your adoptive parents back to? Everybody was having some kind of trauma or struggle in their lives at that time. And that stuff may surface and that may impact the reunion or the feeling of the reunion. And so I think just figuring out a lot of those things along the way, my adoptive parents have always been um, supportive and they've always uh, where 
my family is newspaper article readers. So they always cut out the articles, stick it in my mailbox, stick it in my room, write some questions at the top that we would discuss at dinner time. And um, so they knew it was going to happen. They knew that I eventually was going to look because I was just too curious not to. And they've been very supportive. And th their thing has been, and my birth parents as well, Joy, this is about you. This is about you. It's not about how we feel. When I wrote the memoir, my my birth mom, my, my adopted mom just said, write the book. Don't worry about what everybody else might be feeling. Just write the book. And so with that encouragement, you hear it, you feel it, um, and it makes it a little easier. Although as adoptees, we still struggle with, are we, is this the right thing to do? Is this, gonna, whose feelings am I going to hurt? And it's, it, that part is still a, a, often a struggle. When I was a child, my best friend was adopted. And as an adult, she found her family and her parents were teenagers when they had her mm. and they went on to get married and have like six or seven more kids. She yeah. has full siblings. Yep. And the last time I talked to her, she said, you know, they didn't have money and those kids are not really that healthy. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot of gratitude because I was adopted to people who had money and could take care of me. And I have a better life because of that. Yeah. Is there anything that you would like to say about the journey that you've been on and anything that you're grateful that you have been on this journey? I, I am grateful. My, my birth parents were, they were in college. Um, and so they both were on their own paths of, of doing things. And I know, and I've learned over time that it, it was difficult for birth, for my birth mother to relinquish me. And through it all, I just, I just thank God that she gave me life. I thank God that she's um, made sure that I was placed and, and with a family that was able to care for me. You know, I, I think adoptive moms and dads, and I think that's why I do so much work. And that's where my volunteer work is because I am forever grateful for everything that they've done for the care, for the love, for just nurturing. I say, I, I, I think I'm just happy with the blend of the nature, the natural side of me, and but also the nurturing side of me. And those two pieces have really put made me who I am today. And I always tell people, just like I can love three children as a mom of three children with five bonus children now, um, I can love two sets of parents and, and it's possible. And it's possible. And it, it it's a lot of work <laughs> trying to keep up with everybody and holidays and what that all means in the midst of also being a newlywed. Um, but no, I'm, I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful. So this is the last question was this three part question. OK. <laughs> what would you say to someone who has placed a child? What would you say to someone who is an adoptee? And what would you say to someone who is ad an adoptive parent? Yeah. For someone who's placed a child, give yourself grace. Um, you made a decision at a time in your life that that I'm sure was a difficult one and that give, give yourself grace, give yourself grace and, and um, continue to work on yourself. And if the desire to find and search is out there, you know, there, there's so many ways to get that done now, whether that's DNA or, um, or, or through the state laws and, and, and applying for, again, the open birth records that are beginning to open up in different states uh, and the different registries that you can sign up for. To adoptees, it, it's, it's a difficult struggle. Uh, you are lovable, you are worthy, 
And I found that going to counseling, going to adopt adoption support groups, hearing from all different members of the triad was so beneficial. And we, you know, we really frown upon or, or act as if it's something wrong for people to go to counseling. It was the best thing I could have ever done. And I think that that has been part of a big part of the message that I want to share to people is that um, finding a support group was key because you can't talk about this with everybody because they just won't get it. And so when you do have an opportunity to talk to people who are going through their own experiences or having their own struggles, because every story is not a beautiful story. There's some tragic stories that are going to happen out there in information but find a space to pour out those feelings and so with some people who can help talk you through things and to adoptive parents, we thank you. It is it. it and, and the other part of that is that we know that as the adoptees, that we are also a blessing to the adoptive parents as well. And sometimes I know adoptees struggle because people make us feel as if it's only good for us in that new family structure, but it's just as good for uh, for the adoptive parents as well, because it, it, we're filling a void that was in their hearts and in their family as well. So I, I just hope that people begin to normalize conversations about adoption, stop whispering about it. Um, let's start talking so that everybody can find their community. We need to be able to find those support groups. People who are interested in, in being prospective, adoptive and or foster parents should be able to ask questions and be directed and, and move in the right space to, to help them get that information. And we can only do that if we're going to stop whispering about it. That is just so wonderful advice that you have given. And I think it's going to be very helpful for a lot of people out there and be, be beyond just the state of New Jersey. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And so how can people get a hold of you and how can they get their hands on these multiple books that you have written? Yeah, everything is on my website is finding joy and it's J-O-I uh, dot U-S. And I always say it's dot U-S because it's about all of us. So finding joy dot U-S. At the bottom of the page, there's a tab that says links. That'll tell you about every every resource we mentioned here this this evening or during this podcast. Um, and the books are there. Everything is also available on Amazon. And so I encourage people to, to go there. I'm on social media as at Finding Joy Renee. Uh, but again, everything can be found basically from my website. Awesome. And we are definitely going to include that in the show notes as well, the link. And uh, listeners out there, if you've been moved by Joy's story, I really encourage you to pick up her book and then also to reach out to her and mm -hmm. you know pick her brain. She's got a lot of knowledge there. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Joy, for being on our podcast today. Thank you for having me. You know, people have been sharing stories since the beginning of time to bond and heal and grow. And we hope that by you sharing your story, it's enriched your life and the lives of our listeners. We want to thank all of you for joining us today on Couple Synergy. Our passion is in helping couples and people have happy and healthy relationships. And this podcast gives us a fun way of bringing our knowledge and expertise to you, our listeners. For all of you listening, please let us know how you enjoyed the show. If you have any questions, comments, or topic suggestions, please email us at contact at couplesynergy.com. For more information about Couple Synergy and our programs such as Relationship 101, our home study course, the Couples Weekend intensive and our premier coaching program called couple to couple look us up online at couplesynergy.com and if you know someone who could benefit from this episode please download it and share it and thank you for listening until next time synergize your life and synergize your love
You have been listening to Couple Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. Couple Synergy was recorded, edited, and produced by Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. Voiceover and music entitled Breathe and Let Go was recorded and composed by Gina Gonzalez.